I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man! Right, lad, it's time to man up. Yeah. Come on. Take your boys to a little corner and teach them how to cry all I don't day. Think that's what What is masculinity? Welcome to the Anti-Mask Podcast, where we make compassionate critiques of masculinity in the 21st century. I'm Stefan Harvey, and I'm here as usual with my co-host, Alistair Ingalls. How are you doing, Alistair? Very well, thank you. Good morning, everyone. How's, how's the week been? Busy, man. I don't... Surprisingly busy. I don't know what the hell I've been doing, but it felt busy. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I guess good. Well, no, I like to have some time where I just stare at the wall and just think about nothing. Yeah, yeah, fair. So, um, yeah, this morning I was doing my my morning ablutions and I was looking at the wee the wee dog on the Andrex the Andrex paper, and I was just thinking, why is there a dog on this? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking, why is there why is there a dog on this toilet paper? And um, it's because it's soft, isn't it? That's why it's there. They've put it there because it's soft. But like, and I was thinking about other paper brands like Cushel, which has got like I think a wee koala bear, and that's really soft and fluffy. And yeah, like, and there's one with a bear in there. Yeah, like an actual bear. Maybe that one's Cush. I can't remember. There are all these soft, fluffy things. Mm. And like, I get that you want to associate softness with what's going to touch your bum yeah but do you reckon like surely in one of those meetings where they're deciding what it's going to be there must have been someone around the table who was like they maybe didn't say it right but they definitely thought it they must have thought like hang on are we are we suggest are we suggesting that people wipe their arse with a puppy <laughs> is that what yeah is that, yeah, is that it's what, a really, is that they've really like stopped at the first hurdle, haven't they? Yeah, is that what they're appealing to? They're, appe- they're appealing to people's innate desire to to rub a puppy on their on their bumhole. It's funny, isn't it? Because uh, my family have got dogs. They fucking love rolling around in shit. <laughs> love it. And and also we've got border collies. So apart from like the white bit around their neck. It's it's often hard to locate because they've got like black brown fur. Mm. Yeah, so I was, that was just what I was thinking about this morning. Yeah, I uh, we'll, we'll we'll move on in a minute, but um, I uh, obviously doing a lot of home exercise at the moment, and I've got like one pair of like sports leggings and one pair of like just leg thermals that definitely don't stay around my waist. But like, I increasingly think I might have to buy. I'm going to have to buy a pair of leggings that are marketed to a quote-unquote female body because they go so much more high-waisted. Mm. And when you're doing, like, burpees and squats and stuff, even though they're still tight around my waist, I've got quite a, like, straight waist that, like, they will just fall down so then my bum's just hanging out. And I know I'm just at home at the moment, but it's still annoying. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, you could always just go for a leotard. I could go for Secure it at the yeah, shoulders. That, that's like the, yeah, like the dungarees of leggings, isn't it? Yeah. I think I'd be all right with. I suppose that's that's a silly double standard as well, isn't it? Because if I wore a leotard in the gym, 
I would no doubt get looks, if not comments, if not be actually threatened by people in, in, in terms of like feeling prejudice against someone who's dressed in a typically female piece of clothing. But you've got all these like, in theory, like alpha males who do Ironman and triathlons and stuff. And they wear those like leotard wetsuits, don't they? Yeah, well, I was thinking about wrestlers, you know. Oh, when yeah, I think of a yeah. leotard, I think of a wrestler or yeah, one of these yeah, like totally. absolutely ripped gymnasts or uh, Mr. Muscle. Is it Mr. Muscle? No, Mr. Motivator. Mr. Motivator, not Mr. Muscle. He's I don't the, know who that is. He was like a, a kind of breakfast slash daytime TV aerobics guy. He was, it was in the aerobics boom of the late 80s or mid to late 80s, early it, 90s. Oh, yeah, I was, I was right on that scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. Derek Evans is a Jamaican-born British fitness instructor. He rose to fame in 1993 through appearances on the UK breakfast television show Good Morning TV, mm-hmm. where he performed live fitness sessions and offered tips and advice to viewers. And he had some snazzy, snazzy leotards. Yeah. Yeah, all right, I see what you're saying. I, I could totally wear that. Yeah, you cool, absolutely cool. could. Lovely. Should we, uh, should we get going? Let's get started, man. What is masculinity? So today, we want to talk about masculine tropes, perceptions, toxic, toxic, toxic masculinity, and also the support and opposition to politicians based on the masculine traits. Uh, we're going to talk about leaders from various continents, various parts of the world, and in various political systems. And just have a little chinwag about perceptions of men in power. And also talk a little bit about women in power to provide that contrast. And we might not come to any particular conclusion, but uh, it'll be a nice little intellectual exercise in the meanwhile. So we're going to start with Trump, Alistair. Donald Trump, former US president until a few weeks ago. Thank God for that. And we're going to start with him today because he is currently on his second impeachment trial. And if that's not a sign of male privilege-fueled ignominy and recklessness, I don't know what is. So can you tell us a bit about Trump's personal life that maybe not everyone knows? Yeah, when I was taking a look at the Trump stuff, I mean, what? What can you say about Trump that's not already been said? Yeah. You know. We don't want to bat on about him too much. It's more about the the, the gender structures going on around him, but yeah. Aye. Aye, so I was reading a wee bit about Trump. Um, I, I was reading a little bit about um, his niece's book, Mary, Mary Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she is the daughter of Trump's late eldest brother, who was called Fred Jr. Mm-hmm. And so he was he was the eldest son. And he was being kind of primed, kind of groomed by Fred Sr., Trump's dad, to take over the family business. And... Yeah. Um, 
And Fred Senior, according to his book, Fred Senior was an absolute tyrant. He was just mm-hmm. he was just horrid. He was a horrible bastard. And um he would like he would bully Fred Junior. He would bully Billy Mary's dad. And every any time he said anything like, you know, that would kind of display any kind of weakness or any time he would like apologize for something or be or apologize for being wrong or something or back down, you know, um Fred Senior would just absolutely lay into him and just 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 make his life hot make his life hellish. Right. Make him feel small. Make him feel small, yeah, yeah. And because because Trump Senior wanted his sons to be fighters, he wanted them he wanted them to be to be attack dogs, to be to be ruthless, right? Mm. Cutthroat. And so Trump Junior, um, not Trump Junior. So Donald Trump must have watched this, must have seen this unfold, and seen how his elder brother, who I mean, you always idolize your your elder siblings to an extent, right? So he must have mm. seen seen this his elder brother that he must look up to. He must have seen him just get torn to shreds and must have seen the kind of pain that he was put through. And he must have just thought, he must have just learned how to behave to avoid that. So, yeah, yeah, to never back down, to never say you're wrong, to just keep on, Mm. never admit you're wrong. Fair, yeah. So I think that's so interesting that understandably you'd use um, the word weakness in referring to what triggered the dad's bullying Fred Jr. But I think the word weakness is only really appropriate within the framework of quite a toxic masculine social relationship. Because what they see as weakness is just like not necessarily winning all the fucking time, whether you're right or wrong, right? And, And whether you take responsibility for for what you've done and so on. Mm-hmm. And that actually sometimes like making admissions, acknowledging that someone else's idea is better or, or delegating responsibility to someone at the cost of your own power and all the rest of it are actually things that could be clusters, compromise, humility, pragmatism, flexibility, and like they're actually just such healthy traits to have. Like, why would you not want them? People have to be bending and flexible because you. Well, it, it makes for a more fair society, but also you just don't know what's going to like fall in your path at any point. That's right. That's right. It's this notion that compromising is is a weakness, and it's not. Yeah, which is so unhealthy. That's right. Because I mean, life is life is full of compromises. You have to do it all the time. Hmm. I, th- I think it's interesting, like in the case of him, that Trump and, and that wider family, that basically the only hallmark of success and a very gendered, gendered success like is power. It seems like there's nothing more. Mm. It's just power and control. And then you can see how increasingly that, Arguably, both sides of the political spectrum in the US and the UK, but particularly on the right where they sort of convene under these leaders, that actually a lack of compromise at all starts to infect a political party. Because, like, surely 
deep, deep down, loads of Republic Republicans know that Trump's an idiot and certainly not a trained politician and all the rest of it, and not really a qualified statesman, um, which obviously is quite a loaded term anyway, because a lot of qualified statesmen are still just white men and you can Aye. be like, oh, well, there's loads of other people who could be qualified. But uh -huh. you know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. Like, just within that context, he's absolutely not. He's still a white man, so it's not like giving him the training ads to wider representation or anything. But a lot of people will acknowledge this and then just be like, yeah, but he's getting us votes and that gets us power and then stop, keeps the Democrats out. So we'll, we'll, we'll just back him blindly. Mm. And, then, and then people who possibly a decade ago were very like staunch defenders of the idea of the American constitution and democracy and no person is above the law suddenly just like, yeah, yeah, they stole the election from us because it it conveniently buys into this notion of power at all costs, which doesn't have to be a fundamentally gendered thing, but just because the world's the way it is and men are, albeit unfairly, in power, I don't see how that can't be like a gendered attitude of just like, I will do whatever it takes to get power. Yeah. I would say that um, when you're talking about, you know, power at all costs, I think it's maybe a little bit more, uh, a little bit more subtle than that. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, from just from what I've read, that Trump is really just driven by the need to win. It's the need to win. And yeah. that is one of the reasons I think that the, what happened on January 6th was kind of disorganized and incompetent is because if really what he wanted was to go for, if it was really a power grab, then I think it could have been, a, I mean, it could have been a lot better organized and would have yeah. perhaps would have been a lot better organized, but I think it was just kind of, it's just simply the reluctance to say that you've lost, um, Right. And it's not necessarily like a, a thirst for power, but it, but all it is, is, well, not all it is, but a way to look at it is just a complete aversion to loss. And yeah. the reason that I think, I mean, obviously winning and, and power are, are, are linked. Um, sure. So I'm not, I'm not trying to draw too big a distinction there, but I think there is one. And the one of the reasons I think that is because I was reading about uh, Trump on the golf course. Um, which oh, yeah, go on. I know a bit, but carry on. I think it's so interesting. I think it's so funny. Like 90% of the people that play with him just say that he openly cheats. He just yeah. he just, he just admits, or no, he doesn't even admit cheating, but he just does it so brazenly. And the, just, yeah, it's just like an unspoken thing that everyone acknowledges. He'll just like drop a ball out of his bag in the, in the middle of the fairway. And if someone calls him out, he'd be like, no, it's my ball. This is my drive. Yeah. It's just like just... so blatant, but at the same time, not admitting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's kind of like the, the, the relationship there between kind of power and just winning is kind of interesting there because like, I mean, how much power do you get from winning a, a game of golf with some people? who know you're cheating. It's not like mm. a, 
it is a bit of a power play to to cheat and then just not care about the consequences. Yeah. But that seems I mean, I to suppose, me. Yeah. Sorry, that, just to finish, that seems to me almost just like a. It's so bizarre. It's like some kind of pathological compulsion. Yeah, I think I wonder if like, um, you know, his brother died of alcoholism. Yep. It was a death of despair, which is something we'll discuss in more detail another time, I think. But effectively a form of suicide that's more long-term. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe it's better to look at it... I'm sure other political commentators have said this. I'm not saying this like it's a hot take from me. But a better way of looking at it is he's just absolutely terrified of being a loser. Because yeah. maybe he associates being a quote-unquote loser, like his brother wasn't necessarily a loser, he just didn't live up to his dad's messed-up expectations. But to be that in Trump's head maybe means death and destruction of yourself. Mm. Yeah. But you can see how, you know, you don't necessarily have to become president of the United States, but how that can translate into a lot of fears and anxieties among men in any society where there is an implicit expectation that you become a leader of something, even if it's something as small as just leading, if not dominating a wife and kids. Like that's, that's the, that's the script you've been given from birthright. If you've got a penis and to not be able to do that is a, is a threat to this masculinity that so many people take as given and take as unavoidable. Mm -hmm. So you can see how it happens at all levels of society because like, who doesn't know someone who hasn't cheated in, in a game yeah. or something? Yeah. Because because they're so afraid of the, the, the shame, especially, that comes with losing when you're a man because you have to be seen as dominant. But it's completely absurd because there's always going to be winners and losers in different scenarios in the world. And roughly half the population are, you know, people with penises who then even... You know, ninety nine percent of do identify as men. So how how can you ever always be the winner? I feel like pure competition all the time can only result in some kind of destruction or despair. If you see what I mean? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I do think kind of increased competition and, and hyper competitiveness is quite a masculine trait. I mean that, that's up for debate, but that's some that's something I I think to be true. I mean I'm not yeah I don't I don't think it's a naturally masculine trait. It's just it's totally conditioned. Well, obviously because like gender is conditioned, but yeah yeah just in in the situation we're in, it's it's so like div- not devoted, associated with men to such an extreme extent that it's unhealthy. Hmm. Hmm. And I think I think other men see someone who's successful at competing, and and they can kind of idolise that person, especially if they're if they're or they can rally behind them as a figurehead. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I don't want to go on about it too much, but I've been reading a book by an American gender studies academic called Michael Kimmel 
And his, what I think is his most recent book is called Angry White Men. And it's basically like an ethnography and researched insight into what is most probably Trump's core supporter base of like suburban, lower to upper middle class white men who are generally being fucked over in terms of class. So like increased marketization and casualized labor over the past few decades has meant that the keep that white men typically earn has gone down and down in relative terms. And that's because of other white men like Jeff Bezos and well, Trump and, and people like that who are mega rich and benefit from the exploitation of other lower to middle class people. But because of all sorts of narratives in society, like we do just live in a sexist and racist society in, in the UK and the US and essentially everywhere in the world, if you think about relations between different countries. Um, and because of toxic messages pumped by the media, they will take out their quite legitimate anger about losing out in terms of economic class on people below them in terms of privilege, be it women, queer people, genderqueer or <clears throat> sexuality or people of colour. And then, like you say, they can then look up to Trump and be like, well, he looks like me. He is a winner according to the script of having a family and earning their keep and having power. So if he can do it and he's offering me these, albeit quite empty promises, then yeah, I'm going to rally behind him. Mm. Yeah, people want to believe in someone, you know. If you believe in a meritocracy, then you'll look at these high flyers and you'll think they must know what they're doing. Look at how successful they are. They've figured out the secret. Yeah, totally. They have some divine insight um, that is going to benefit me. Yeah, and that's why meritocracy, I can't think of a a better idea as a pure form, like a pure meritocracy where everyone legitimately starts at a level playing field would be a good thing, right? Yeah. But the reality is that you don't. And then when that's the case, if you pump a myth that you are in a meritocracy, then pump, yeah, pump the idea. <laughs> that Get it pumped, man. Ch churn out this myth that you're in a meritocracy, then people are going to look up to men who are actually massively privileged and in no way That's right. did start on a level playing field and it will actually sustain a far more unequal society. That's right. Cool. Um, I think on that note, that's a good segue into looking more at British politicians and also the context from which a lot of the so-called ruling class emerge and how it is similar to figures like Donald Trump and other super powerful white men in the US and also how there's a more particular historical context in the UK. Um, so obviously Boris Johnson's the Prime Minister at the moment, again from a slightly different context because, you know, Trump is a sort of like American dream figurehead, Scottish family, and then they made money and he grew up in that privilege, but Johnson's far more part of a very British class-based system, went to Eton, 
uh, where I think more than just being told they have a right to run the country, they actually probably implicitly get told that they have a responsibility to do so. But um, anyway, the point is that similarly, like Trump, probably a lot of disenfranchised white men, particularly who have been hard done by, by, you know, more casual employment and lower wages and zero hours contracts and things like that over decades. Again, look at Johnson and think, right, he's got the magic formula to success and power. So I'll vote for him because I, I see something in him. And equally, even though he never, he's never been in elected office in the UK, Nigel Farage is a similar case. He went to Dulwich College in, in London and he's absolutely part of the ruling class. He just didn't go to uni and has always been on the fringes of politics. But again, somehow appeals to this quite like nativist base of voters. And it, it just, I mean, it doesn't surprise me anymore, but it just makes me sad how these men from elite schools continue to convince people who in terms of economic class are worlds apart from them that that they speak to their anxieties and concerns yeah that that hierarchy or that that difference between where the the leader's background and the kind of electorate that they appeal to most their background the the disparity between those two socioeconomic backgrounds is really so stark and it's quite it just really confuses me it it really like kind of gives me pause for thought every time yeah i don't know man i've got nothing <laughs> i've got no, i've got no insight here but yeah well do you know what that's that's great because that's really challenging toxic masculinity not necessarily toxic but just being like do you know what i don't have something to offer here I, I was saying that in I was saying that in quite a silly way, but I actually genuinely think that that and it's something I was going to get onto with someone like Boris Johnson and a lot of like public school educated people that I don't think they're so bothered about not being a loser in the way Trump is, right? But they can't be wrong. Uh-huh. Like they cannot be wrong. Right. Oh, interesting. And that is something that almost not exclusively but largely an elite education over more affordable or down-to-earth educations do not provide because I'm, I'm not saying that they, they are right by winning a debate in an inverted commas because and and well I can go off on a whole tangent about that but like that's just what creates the culture of playing devil's advocate right mm-hmm just like elite educated men have been playing devil's advocate since, you know, the fucking dawn of British society or, or any society perhaps. But again, it's that, it's that pride that's so tied in with sort of like masculine esteem of like, even if I'm bending facts or I'm framing things in, quite a not very academic or nuanced way, I have to sound like I'm winning an argument, not for the not out of principle of what the subject is, but just to for that person on the other side of, you know, Parliament or the microphone to be wrong and for me to be framed as right. 
I mean, that that's definitely like an instinct that a lot of people feel. Um, yeah, no completely. Matter but, but I think, but I, is what you're saying that that kind of attitude is is just really prominent and really. Well, yeah, it's institutionalized, I, and they receive training for it from like the age of nine or whatever. Yeah, and then, I mean, like you know, there's no point sort of like saying, oh, at a certain point we were worlds apart from them because we've both been students at Oxford, but maybe it was different because you were doing research right and I didn't bear not I didn't like see the worst of this because I was doing Chinese studies where like a lot of people just actually didn't know anything from the beginning so there was a bit more sort of like humility about right among the students on the course uh-huh. but I think you know if you're doing like a history or politics degree and you can see again how, like, in, a, in a unequal access is sustained through this, that a lot of the time the people who get the highest marks are the people who just argue utter guff the best. Because, uh, like, e- even if you're making a really, like, impassioned, principled argument about something that, you know, benefits an oppressed group or highlights an injustice or whatever, you've still got to argue it, argue it well. Definitely. For it to be compelling, <clears throat> that's that's just universal. And that is a skill. But then if you like, that's a skill. Yeah, exactly. And 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 of course, so I'm not just saying the people who argue the best are like lacking in principles, but there are then just so many people who are. But then within that education system and systematically in the workplace and politics are rewarded for it throughout life, just rewarded for being devil's advocate. Yeah, uh, rewarded for, yeah, being an effective devil's advocate, yeah, definitely. Yeah, an effective, de- yeah, obviously if you suck at being devil's advocate, then <laughs> you're going to get out devil's advocate <laughs> by the, the real devil's advocates, like uh-huh. like Ben Shapiro or that guy from the north with the map behind his head. I think I know I think I know who you, who you mean, but I don't want to speak his name. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's just. Refer- he's got an open collar shirt. We could just refer and, to him. Uh, as- his, his accent's probably quite like mine, sort of like a, a, a conditioned, like quite a lot of articulation, but still quite a, like a noticeable northern accent. Does he look like Ben Shapiro? Is he young and, and short hair and? Yeah, he's probably yeah yeah he's probably a bit older than he's probably like early thirties like, now. Like clean shaven and. Yeah, I think yeah. I know who you mean. Aye. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you've you've seen him. Aye, yeah. aye. Yeah, and then going back to sort of like what what's conditioned in particularly the public school system, but like we say, it is it, it is traits that are present in every sort of level of class in in British society and so on. I've been reading a bit of not loads of it recently. James O'Brien's latest book, How Not to Be Right, and he went to a public school. Was it Ampleforth? Mm. Oh, I hate I hate saying that like I care, <laughs> but I suppose it, I suppose it's always significant to like understand what you're talking about. Yeah. But he basically, you know, he's like known as like a, a very liberal left wing voice in British media, but until very recently, was quite a staunch defender of smacking and low key beating kids as a form of punishment because he was convinced that 
getting smacked by his dad and caned by the schoolmaster at his prep school and then his boarding school, quote-unquote, did him no harm and that he, he wasn't traumatised by it. And he, he acknowledges that he was a naughty boy quite a lot of the time and it sort of taught him to be a bit more cooperative and all the rest of it. Um, and then what changed his mind one day was he was on TV in Norwich at the time on a daily show or something. And again, he was basically just like getting... Are you thinking of Alan Partridge? Yes, that is exactly what I was thinking of. I just did a big grin and Steph was like, what are you smiling at? (laughs) Oh, and my dogs have heard someone at the door. Just give that a minute. Fuck's sake. That's all right. So James O'Brien was on a TV show in Norwich, daytime thing. And I think one morning or one day they were discussing whether it's all right to smack kids. And he defended it based on his experience growing up, being like, oh, well, you know, it didn't, didn't affect me. I was a very naughty boy, and it taught some sense into me. And then there was a, a woman with a son who had suffered from addiction problems, and they were living on the breadline, and also just had a lot of free time Um, maybe because she wasn't getting enough work or she was on benefits or something. I can't remember exactly why. But they would essentially come and sit in the audience almost every day on this show, because they could. And this woman, I think she was called Kathy, would become quite a regular contributor to the discussions. And James O'Brien was there, waxing lyrical about getting whacked with a cane by a, a headmaster or just smacked by his dad. And this woman, Kathy, who, whose son had had addiction problems because the dad was abusive, and then he often, or not irregularly, also lashed out on Kathy, the wife, sort of said, well, is it okay that I was hit by my husband and, and my son was beaten by him? And he, and he said no. James O'Brien acknowledged that that wasn't okay. So she said, so why is it okay for you to sort of apply that quite restrictive violence to a kid? And then what was most striking to James O'Brien was the fact that, you know, he is this very privileged man, but he likes to think that he's well-intentioned with generally left-wing liberal ideas that he has since acknowledged how much of an impact the attitudes and experiences and and comebacks and questioning of this woman who absolutely was not educated in the same system that he was and has also been subjected to far more traumatic experiences, how her opinions and input was able to readjust his attitude so so significantly and he was sort of saying how can't remember the exact distinctions he makes but that a, a, a very good education being well educated can often cover up for a lot of ignorance and equally you cannot be particularly well educated and maybe because of that can't argue particularly well but if you're just a good person and based on your experience, you can 
very you can speak truth to power as well as anyone can mm. and you know I don't want to say oh James O'Brien is this person that like all men in the 21st century Britain should idolise because poor him has realised how slightly traumatic his no. public school education was but it's just very it's just it just brings so much hope that someone of his background can acknowledge how self-sustaining the system of like having a stiff upper lip and not admitting that you're wrong mm. is and how damaging it is to that class's mental health and also wider society when they're in power and what it teaches other people and other men in particular. Yeah, definitely. He's he's a good example of the possibility of let's say let's call it breaking the cycle through self-reflection yeah and uh that's what we're trying to do here steph yeah yeah exactly so let's get him on that was good to see let's get him on (laughs) i I reckon if we grew enough maybe one day he would Mm. um it was also interesting we were chatting about this before we actually recorded the other day but also how like he mentions in his book, and I also remember hearing on the radio, that when Boris Johnson got coronavirus back in, was it late spring? Or whenever he got yeah. it, sometime last year, David Cameron was interviewed. And again, this like absolutely highlights the sort of chumocracy of two men who were two prime ministers apart, or one prime minister apart. That someone interviewed David Cameron being like, oh, do you think Boris is going to be all right? And he was like, oh, well, if being his opposing number on the tennis court is anything to go by, I'm sure he'll fight through it just as well as anyone. And then equally some like old posh lord or something was on the news on Radio 4 one afternoon when he was in hospital or quarantining back at number 10 afterwards. And this, this, you know, this old boy was like, well, you know, he was a big bruiser on the rugby field and learnt so much about life there. And um, he, he always put up a good fight on the pitch, so I'm, I'm sure he will with this virus too. And it's like, you can't fight a fucking virus. <laughs> you can't, it's not a kangaroo with boxing gloves on. <laughs> you can't just batter it and you're fine. And like, I know a lot of people of like all genders say this about cancer too. But I just think it's quite a, and I'm not one to comment, I've never had anyone particularly close to me who's had cancer, definitely haven't lost anyone. Actually, more recently, two people who are very close to other people in my immediate family are suffering from forms of cancer, and but I'm not talking to those people directly. But this idea of like saying you're fighting cancer all the time is like, I don't like like I'm saying. What I mean is, I don't want to. It's their place to frame how they describe their again battle. Like I don't have a better word for it because everyone uses those words so much. Mm. But like journey, it's their place to describe their journey the way they want. But to describe it as a battle or a fight just seems a bit. I feel like there's unnecessary aggression and violence implied in that that doesn't necessarily help either way. Not saying it necessarily has a negative impact, but it's still just like framing something in terms of a battle campaign when either 
the science is going to work in your favour or the cancer is just going to be too aggressive and it isn't. Mm. Yeah, you do. And the same with coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah, you see that language everywhere when it's when you're talking about combating an illness. I just said combat. Um, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that needs to be reframed. And also, and then when you do use that language, it plays into the hands of men who want to be perceived in a certain strongman kind of way. So for Trump and Bolsonaro and Boris, for them then to come out the other side having survived it, they can frame that as winning a battle and it gives them more kudos. Mm. Yeah, and then you have in like... In that framework. Then you have like the double trauma if you're this really like mass manly, manly man and you get cancer and it's a really difficult case. Then yeah. you have the the trauma of like getting kind of beaten. Mm. You, have, yeah. you have the physical trauma because you have cancer and it's bad. Yeah. But you also have the kind of like... I don't know, like emasculating trauma. But anyway. So let's change how we talk about very dangerous illnesses, uh, which is a big ask right now <laughs> because people have got more immediate concerns. Uh, I acknowledge that. But going forwards, let's try not to frame it in such aggressive masculine terms. Mm-hmm. So I heard you've been reading a bit about Putin. I was reading a bit about Putin, but I got a wee bit bored, so mm-hmm. I, d- I wrote a quiz. It's I'm going to ask you questions, and the answer is either Putin or Putin. Okay. Um, one is a national dish; the other is chips, cheese, and gravy. Do you think? Do you think Putin's a bit of a dish, Steph? Oh. Do you think he's a bit dishy? I think he wants to be. I think he wants to be framed as a dish, but he's not my cup of tea. He's not your cup of tea. Fair enough. Mm. Um, I wish we'd done a wee jingle for this, and maybe I'll for that for the quiz for the quiz the Putin quiz. Yeah, yeah, for the Putin quiz. Yeah, right. Quiz me. Right, you ready? Yep. Okay. What was born in nineteen fifty-seven? Vladimir Putin or oh. Putin. Talk me through talk me through your thought process. So is Putin sixty-four? I think he might be a bit older. Cause I think he looks he looks good for his age, I know that. Mm-hmm. He does. I'm gonna say Putin. You're spot on, mate. Yes. You're spot yes. on. Well done. Chip, oh man! Chips and gravy in nineteen fifty-seven. Yeah, the um, the most popular story about the origin of poutine is a, there was a, a fella called Ferdinand Lachance who ran this restaurant, right. and there was a a, a a guy called Eddie Lanese who was a regular. He was a truck driver. He was a regular at the restaurant. One day he comes in, and he just says, "Gonna give me the same chips that I always get, but." Going to put some gravy and cheese on it, and then right. the guy who ran it said, "Ça va faire une maudite poutine," which means apparently that's going to make a damn mess. And that is the that is the poutine origin story. Oh, doesn't is is poutine a variant of poutine, which means prostitute, and it's just like a swear word. Could be, I don't know. Maybe could be a Quebecois. 
Quebecois variation. Quebecois variation. Prostitute. Interesting. Yeah. Right, what's the next right, question? Right, next question. What was it possible to get at McDonald's? Poutine or a Vladimir Putin figurine? I'm going to go for the figurine in Russia. Yeah, that is wrong. It is, it is possible. You can, the, the, the McDonald's in Canada sell Putin. Sell Putin? Yeah. I wonder how that's received among Canadians. Surely they're like, that's just them creating a really bait version of a national snack. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we've got plenty of poutine, thanks. We don't need the McDonald's yeah. version. Also, I think I've only ever had poutine once from like a, like a pop-up thing by a brewery or summit, and I don't know how authentic it was. But, I, you know, having had chips and gravy or cheesy chips in the UK, you can't, you can't be doing that with McDonald's-style fries. No. They need to have a bit more girth and a bit more sogginess to them. Definitely. Definitely, man. Yeah. Right. Canada has a themed restaurant. What theme is it? Oh, for fuck's sake. Poutine oh. or Putin? I feel like Poutine might be too obvious. <laughs> but why would there be a Putin themed restaurant in Canada? Why indeed? Oh, I'm going to go for Putin. You're right. You're absolutely yes. spot on, mate. Yes. Oh, my God. You're. You're doing pretty well. There's a there's a restaurant in Montreal called Vladimir Poutine, like like, ah, and they've got. Um, well, isn't that a bit of a isn't that a bit of a trick question? Because all right, I suppose it's more Putin than. Mm. They've got like Putin stuff on the wall, and they've got like burgers named after dictators. How quaint! And um, they've got like um, Obama's face on the toilet paper, which That's... is kind of fucked. Oh. Um, yeah. But is that better or worse than a puppy? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, why don't they have his face on more toilet paper, you know? Um Right, okay, that was good. Right, here's the last question, right, and then we can forget okay. we can forget about this this ever happened. Um Joey Chestnut holds the world record for eating over eleven and a half kilograms of what? But if it's Putin, what what is he eating that's Putin related? Yeah, that's what you need to figure out, mate. You can't answer a what question with yeah, <laughs> or are you just not giving me any more I'm information? I'm not giving you any more. It's either Putin or Putin. I'll go Putin. You're right. You're spot right. on. What is is there a is there an explanation for why the answer could possibly be Putin? No, I just apart from him being a cannibal. I was just really amazed that someone ate. 11 and a half kilos and a half kilos of poutine in 10 minutes in 10 minutes, <laughs> in 10 minutes. So, do you know what like, I guess I guess one like hefty tray would be about a kilo right yeah that, that would feed like three people a kilo so you're going like 50 seconds to get through one of, fuck <laughs> me I was I just read it I was like hang on what like you know we've all had the thing where like you live in a flat with shared you share a flat with people and then like Maybe you make lunch for the next day and then your flatmate comes home steaming and then they eat it. And you're like, for yeah, yeah, fuck's yeah. sake, man. This was my... Yeah, yeah. And they just eat your food, right? Imagine imagine you're hosting a dinner party for like 30 people and it's... And Johnny Chestnut's there. <laughs> and you and Johnny Chestnut's your flatmate. And then you pop out you pop out to get some beers for the dinner and you come back and he's just sat there like having scoffed all the food in 10 minutes flat. 
I could just imagine like a proper big guy <laughs> with a bit of gravy on his chin being like, uh oh, just like shrugging in the air. Sorry, <laughs> I was hungry. <laughs> yeah, that's Joey oh. Chestnut for you. Oh, Joey Chestnut said Johnny Chestnut. Get it right, man. Put some respect on yeah. his name. <laughs> My God. Aye, so that's what I got about Putin, man. Um, well, that was insightful. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we all know, we all know about Putin. We all know that he's he he's this hyper masculine performance. Like the fit, the fit pictures of him riding a horse, topless. The pictures of him fishing, topless. The 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 videos of him like doing judo and and there's so much stuff of him with like shooting. There's so much, so many photos of him shooting a gun. And like he's got all these dogs, um, and do you mind in twenty fifteen he he did this underwater excavation, he like dove down. It was this big like press, uh, I don't know, Thing. I don't know what you call it, it's a pr- uh, stunt, yeah, PR stunt, yeah, yeah, this big PR stunt, aye, and yeah, he he went down to a shipwreck in the in like was it the Aegean and um, I don't know. The Black Sea, the Black Sea. Right. And yeah, he came back up with like these urns, these Greek urns that he apparently had discovered. And it's like cultivating this image of him as this kind of action man. It's absolutely... Bloody hell. So, I mean, what more, can you, what more can you say? What more can you say about him? You know, he is well, I mean, such a wild performance. Boris went across the Thames on a zip wire. <laughs> Yeah, action man Boris. Yeah, um, I suppose. Oh, it's quality. I suppose to ask a more serious question. What's why is it interesting that you? Well, as you pointed out yesterday, he was democratically elected. Mm-hmm. Some in in some some constituencies has won over a hundred percent of the votes. Don't what you can't get it, more democratic than that, Steph. <laughs> can't get more democratic than more than zero <laughs> sum <laughs> um, why do people I'm not saying like the British and American systems are ideal they're far from that but you know people do get a say to some extent why is it that people gravitate to that kind of masculinity even in quote unquote democratic societies yeah why why indeed? Because they're not coerced into it. They don't. They don't have to feign worship of this like strongman figure. But they always gravitate back towards it when times are hard. That's it. It's when times are hard. I think, and when when times are hard, it's really easy to see to see yourself belonging to a country that is in competition with the rest of the world and mm. in that situation you want the leader of that country to be a competitor to be that's yeah the big man yeah to be strong and that's almost always in gendered terms yeah i totally get that nice nice hot take that there you go because yeah that's interesting because i've always like in this in that book angry white men by michael kimmel 
he comes up with this, well, I don't know if he coined it, but he uses this phrase, aggrieved entitlement, which is a sense that benefits that you believed you were entitled to. So, you know, largely as a straight white man, you've, you've got a lot that should be on your plate. Believing that the benefits you're entitled to have been snatched away from you by like unforeseen forces, forces that are larger and more powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can see how that translates to a global stage where, you know, the small man who works the nine to five and lives, lives in the suburbs is fully aware that that's completely out of their control. But they, so they'd want to revert back to a system where they were the center of attention. I say we're like straight white men aren't still, but you know what I mean? That as Michael Kimmel points out, America Believe it's still got a long way to go, as does the UK, as does any society, but is the most equal. It's only ever carried on getting more equal in terms of race and gender, albeit at mm. a sometimes depressingly slow rate, but ever more unequal in terms of economic class. Progress, ha yeah, progress has been made, but for yeah, for this group, angry white men, that progress has been been painful. Yeah, but yeah. I think, so another thing that Michael Kimmel says is that their anger is real, like it's a real emotion. Yes. So I think when we're talking about these people, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sympathize with them, but I want to acknowledge them, right? I want to see them because to go like, oh, what the fuck are they whinging about? Like they've always had it so well throughout their lives. They should just like shut up and put up. You can see why you'd be inclined to say that if you if you believe in like combating male privilege and, and all forms of privilege and all the rest of it. But to just disregard it as purely that is not engaging with what can be this quite dangerous force of men who are genuinely angry. Yeah. So Michael Kimmel says that their anger is real, but it's not true because it's genuine emotion based on falsehoods about things being snatched away, like, you dick your jibs, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it's just not true. The people snatching away their work are people imposing, like, more casual employment and less social support and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a massive tangent away from Russia, but... We were pretty... Uh, I, yeah. I mean, I was pretty I was pretty down on Russia, uh, but no and I was going to segue out of it by saying, uh, but just just briefly talking about Jair Bolsonaro. Go on. So after Bolsonaro had COVID and he and he recovered, he posted on Facebook about a conversation that him and Vladimir Putin had had, where Putin praised his masculinity. Did you hear? Did you know about this? I had no idea about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Putin like called him up and he was like, "You're such a strong man. Well done." You're really strong and masculine, and uh, that I'm paraphrasing. Like a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, and uh, yeah, Bolsonaro. He put it on Facebook. I love the fact that he put it on Facebook. Like, um, put it on my FB. Yeah, Bolsonaro. You know, in you know, in Star Wars, you know the Emperor. I'm not much of a Star Wars person. Okay, okay, okay. Well, anyway, the Emperor had his his like his face goes all saggy and 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 wrinkled and gaunt. From from like all right. the evil, it like okay, it has an effect on on his face, and I think Bolsonaro has a wee touch of that. Like, right? I don't want to, I I don't want to like spend it just talking like talking about how he looks. But 
he does he does look like evil has sucked mm. sucked some of his life out some of his life force and um it's quite possible yeah and you know when a you know when a baby smiles like it just spreads it, yeah. it spreads joy and makes people happy yeah. it makes people want to laugh when they see a baby smile yeah, it's yeah, just really yeah. pure see when i see pictures of bolsonaro smiling i just think well, how'd you feel what what's he up to man? what's this <laughs> <laughs> what is he up to what is he smiling about you know what twisted images are in his head nothing good nothing good nothing good i tell you that um that's interesting yeah bolsonaro i mean he's 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 maybe in some ways worse than putin um there was there was in what sense do you think in what sense well there was that time in but in back in 2014 he said in a parliamentary debate to a female mp that he wouldn't rape her because she wasn't worth it right i remember hearing about that at the time and being really shocked but mm. it's still shocking because the, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Because the implication, I think, the implication is that uh, if she was more beautiful, perhaps, then she might be worth raping. Yeah. And that is the head of Brazil. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely wild. Yeah, just even more explicit form of the age-old grabbing by the pussy phrase. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, fair. and and he was democratically elected. Yes, albeit through what I'm, what I imagine is a slightly flawed system. Mm. But you know, you've got leaders like Putin and Xi Jinping. They just haven't been democratically elected, so at least they're not. I say at least they're not so. They haven't been given a mandate to say that. So you... Oh, no, they haven't been given a mandate to make their voice heard in the way that they do make their voice heard. So you don't know how much people are actually listening to what they're saying. Yes. It do, because what they say goes anyway. That's a good Whereas point. Whereas if, if you've got an electorate that's voted for someone who's saying these things, it's a far more direct condonement of what's being said yeah mm -hmm. so actually that that yeah that's that is more scary i'd say mm. so you need more people i'm sure there are loads of people i don't pay enough attention to brazilian politics but i'm sure there are loads of people in brazil calling out what he's saying and yeah. challenging what he's saying too i'm pretty sure he's quite repressive of the media right i don't know that i don't know that but you know that would not be surprising given Mm. his other behavior you know yeah and again going on to more political cultures that were actually just not fact up on enough really to comment on completely but i do think it's so significant and interesting and also quite heartwarming that two of the countries in the world with the most impressive records on coronavirus are led by women namely Taiwan and New Zealand. And both of those women, can't remember if it was pre or post pandemic, the Taiwan election, but both of those women have like further bolstered their majority in second elections in the past year and a bit. Right. And that's just so good to see. But I also think 
there must be like a gendered element there that is testament to many male leaders reluctance to assume responsibility or manage things in a savvy way and I think often that is because probably a lot of men don't have to fight for power in the same way so when they do get it they're not as diligent or they don't feel as much of a sense of responsibility because generally when men fuck up there are less consequences what I might just add there is that maybe sometimes they do have to fight really hard and but in in so doing it's this kind of fighting where you don't build bridges and and compromise like if compromise is a dirty Mm. word then when you do reach the top you're constantly watching your back and it's it's quite it can be quite unstable yeah yeah that's a really good point because if yeah if you compromise all the way up and you 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 build bridges you form relationships then ideally you'd be able to rely on them when times are yeah, hard. Yeah, I get you. And, and surely if you're a woman in a man's world, there's no way you're going to get to the top without being pragmatic about those relationships. Sure. Super cool. Mm. Um, I was going to talk a bit about China, but I feel like I think we've, we've done an hour. We've gapped on. And I could do a whole episode on that anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's we, we we can leave it there. We can leave it there. I, w- yep. I wanted to talk about Thatcher a bit, but that'll take like another. We'll probably go off on one. So <laughs> it'll just make me feel sick. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how I want to start my Saturday. Yeah. Um, cool, man. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Anti Mask Podcast, where we've maybe given a slightly less compassionate critique (laughs) of certain political leaders than we might have anticipated but yeah it's been an interesting exploration of political power through the lens of gender and i hope it's left you guys with something to think about what is masculinity